Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Today, also, there's electronic Bible access, any translation you want, any language you want. So when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, but we're able to do that, to make disciples of all nations, his final commission. The Second Vatican Council allowed the use of vernacular languages at masses now, and Latin gets termed a dead language. You guys, the church encourages our study of history. It is his story. Time is marked by by the incarnation of Christ. Many conversions to Catholicism have happened by people studying history and the apostolic church fathers. Now, back to Paul's letter to the Romans. We ended last week, chapter 9, and we were talking about Israel's unbelief. And let's just start at that verse 30, chapter 9. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is righteousness through faith. But that Israel, who pursued righteousness, which is based on law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it through faith, but as though it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. That rock, that stumbling stone is Jesus Christ, and many of the Jews missed it. Early on, the Holy Spirit had not been poured out yet, so their minds weren't illuminated. They didn't have those gifts of knowledge and understanding and right judgment and wisdom. But Jesus had told them in John 15, when the counselor comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. The Romans, the Jews, I'm sorry, have stumbled over the stumbling stone. He who believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus tells his disciples that you also are going to be my witnesses because you have been with me from the beginning. But Some of the Jews missed the clues. They missed all the clues. Many Jews missed the advent of their own Messiah. Jesus became a stumbling block, a stumbling rock, a rock that would make them fall. Why was Jesus a rock that made Jews stumble? The idea of a stumbling stone is an odd thing. Who would deliberately place a rock for people to trip over? St. Paul quotes directly from the prophet Isaiah in Romans 9, showing that the stone that's tripped over is because of rejection, because it is rejected rather than being received by faith. First, Paul quotes from Isaiah 8, 14, where the prophet described the Lord as a rock of offense and a stumbling stone to all of Israel. And Paul insists this is not a new idea for the Jewish people, that they would struggle to accept the idea of righteousness being found through faith in Jesus Christ. Because Isaiah 8 says, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inheritance of Jerusalem, to both houses, the north 
earth, the northern kingdoms, the ten to the north and the two to the south, Judah, a stone, an offense, a rock, a stumbling block to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare. In Romans 9, Paul will then quote from Isaiah 28. Therefore says the Lord God, behold, I'm laying in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and he who believes will not be in haste. Other translations will not be stricken with panic, will not be disturbed, will not be put to shame. The believers will not be put to shame. So in more literal terms, such people will not be shown to be foolish for believing in Christ. This symbolically is the stone that the Israelites have tripped over. And Paul writes, because they refuse to believe in Christ, wishing instead to prove their righteousness by their own works, works of the ceremonial law. This isn't Paul's original idea. Remember the presentation of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. His father and mother were amazed at the things being said by Simeon, who was full of the Holy Spirit. Simeon blessed his parents and said to his mother, Mary, behold, this child, and it's a capital C, this child, the anointed one, is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall of many. He's going to make people fall and stumble. He's that stumbling stone. Your child's going to be a stumbling block for many in Israel. Behold, he's appointed for the fall and rise. He's going to be a sign to be opposed and a sword's going to pierce your soul and many hearts are going to be revealed. They're either going to believe or not believe. Simeon knew this with his whole being by the power of the Holy Spirit that he is holding God's anointed one and he will be the cause of many to fall. They won't believe. Simeon prophesied this at 40 days old. The child will be a stumbling block for many in Israel. Many will not believe. He is the stumbling stone, the one, capital one, the anointed one to be tripped over because many will reject him rather than receive him by faith. This isn't what they thought their Messiah would look like. Psalm 18, 118 says, you will give thanks I will give you thanks for you answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus himself is going to teach them about this principle of being a stone. It's in the parable of the tenants. All three synoptics have it. Just listen and try to really listen carefully and figure this out. Jesus went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest, he sent a servant. So the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit that was from the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant. But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? Ah, I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And the people heard this, and they said, God forbid. And Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. He's coming to judge. 
the living and the dead. The teachers of the law, the chief priests looked away. They wanted to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them and they were afraid of the people. So that landowner is God the Father. The vineyard is his kingdom. The tenants are Israel's religious leaders and all who reject his son. The servants were the prophets he sent ahead of time and the faithful believers. And the beloved son is Jesus Christ. And yes, when he was killed, the inheritance will be theirs because salvation is offered to all. All who repent, the stone which the builder rejected has become the chief of the corner stone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Paul is going to preach this to the new Ephesian believers, the Christians, the Gentile converts in Ephesus when he says in Ephesians chapter 2, 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, and but fellow citizens with God's people, the Jews, and also members of his household. You're one of us now, but you're built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. You're built on all these Jews, the Jewish apostles, the Jewish prophets, and the Jewish Messiah, and you're part of us, and Jesus is our chief cornerstone. He tells the Corinthians, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud, in the sea, and they ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink, and they drank from the spiritual rock, that cornerstone, the rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. They drank from Jesus Christ. The old Moses would strike the rock. The new Moses, Jesus Christ, was gushing out of the rock. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them all along. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Salvation was offered to all, but not all received it. Only two in that first generation, only two made it to the promised land. You know who they are. Joshua and Caleb. One more Jesus rock example, and then we'll go on. But Daniel, Daniel the prophet, he's taken away in the Babylonian exile, and he serves King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and the king has a dream. And the king won't tell his dream. He's very upset by the dream, but he won't tell the dream to anyone. He wants them to tell him what he dreamt. None of the Babylonians could do it. They call for Daniel, the Jewish exile. Daniel says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding in brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was fine gold. The breasts were arms of silver. The thighs, the belly were bronze. The legs were iron, and the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it smote the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold altogether were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away so not a trace of them could be found but the stone the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth this was your dream and now i will tell you we will tell you the king its interpretation so he figured out the dream by no one telling him by the power of god and now he will give the interpretation he knows a stone is coming it's not made of human hands it's going to crush all other worldly kingdoms and it will be a stone that is an eternal kingdom one without end to rule all 
otherworldly kingdoms. And Daniel goes on in verse 44, in those days, kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, nor shall its sovereignty be left to another people. It will break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand for Ever, as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain, its interpretation is sure. It's the kingdom of God, and it starts with the church on earth, and it starts with the incarnation of the Jewish Messiah in the womb of a young virgin in Nazareth, and he will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He's the rock. It's the eternal kingdom predicted in Daniel 2, a kingdom with no end. Mary's son will be the rock, not hewn from human hands. It will crush all other worldly kingdoms. It will be an eternal kingdom with an eternal king. He tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. So you are a king then. Oh, you say I am. St. Paul knows the Old Testament readings, but the Holy Spirit is illuminating his mind and connecting all the dots. Back to Romans 10. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by it. We heard Paul earlier quoting Habakkuk, the the prophet, but the righteous man would live by faith. But Paul goes on to say, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What is Paul talking about here? I know a lot of people struggled with this in doing your, your commentary. Let's take some time to understand this. It's like a riddle. Who will ascend into the heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? Huh? He's talking about, I think, Christ's descent into Hades. The harrowing of Hades in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the descent of Christ into limbo in the Latin Western tradition. But in both cases, the glorified Jesus, the spirit of, the, of, of Jesus has come and conquered death. You see with his victorious cross, he has a cross and he is poking it down into death itself, into Hades, and he is pulling out Adam. He's gone in search of Adam to the place of the dead, to Sha'al. There's no way these captives can get out. Jesus has to set them free. He's grabbing him by the wrist and pulling him out. And we learn more about this in what's called the Gospel of Nicodemus. It's sometimes called the Acts of Pontius Pilate. It's the same ancient document. It's real. It's not sacred scripture. It's written in Greek. It was not part of the canon, but it has inspired art and hymns and prayers in the liturgies over the centuries. The Gospel of Nicodemus, also known as Acts of Pilate, is an apocryphal gospel claimed to have been derived from an original Hebrew work written by Nicodemus. And you know Nicodemus. We studied him in John. We met him three times in the Gospel of John. By the third time we met him, he was all in, bringing hundreds of pounds uh, of, of myrrh and alloy to anoint the body, a burial fit for a king, a mixture of myrrh and aloes about a hundred pounds worth with Joseph of Arimathea. Those two men together would take the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with spices, and help Mary bury the body. Joseph of Arimathea would offer his new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. And they did it because the Jews' preparation day, the tomb was nearby. They would try, they helped Mary get Jesus buried before sundown. Now, did you ever wonder what happened between the time Jesus died on the cross 
and his resurrection, that tomb time. Well, Paul says, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, and who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? What is the meaning of this riddle? All souls would go to the abyss after death. Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, when Christ became incarnate in the virgin's womb? Who would go ascend up to heaven to bring Christ down? No one. God will send him down according to his own perfect timing. At the appointed time, God sent down Jesus, incarnate by Mary's, yes, her fiat. And and Paul will tell the Galatians when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so we might all really receive adoption as sons. Who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? Again, my friends, this will be God's plan. This will be God's plan. And we're told in 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. It's two verses in the New Testament from Peter. Who will ascend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Jesus, the spirit of Jesus. The tomb was sealed. The armed guards were watching. His physical body was dead, but he was made alive in the spirit. Before he physically burst forth from the tomb on the eighth day, Easter Sunday, in a glorified body during tomb time, he was made alive in the spirit and he descends to the abyss by the spirit on Holy Saturday. He's made alive in the spirit and he harrows Hades and all souls since the fall of mankind are waiting in Hades. They're waiting in limbo, what the Latins call limbo. They're waiting for a savior. They're trapped in the cursed ground of Adam. They can't get free on their own, but he's made alive in the spirit. And he went and made a proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. That means he preached the gospel. He preached to them the good news, what he had done. But Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why he says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order that he might fill all things. He's the fulfillment of all. He ascended and he descended. The gospel of Nicodemus is not scriptures, but it's used to understand this theological concept in the early church. Now, a little further, Matthew 27 is the only one that tells us that that curtain, uh, more tell us about the curtain being torn from top to bottom, the earth shook, there was earthquakes, rocks split open. But Matthew is the only one that tells us that tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And this is a Tassat painting that I love of those resurrected bodies from Matthew 27 appearing in the city of Jerusalem. Now the gospel of Nicodemus will address this. Did anyone talk to these bodies? Did anyone, who are these people? Well, we read about two male witnesses who were resurrected that day. And there had to be two to three to be an authentic Jewish witness. Two males would have been the bare minimum. So it's the narrative of Nicodemus, the gospel of Nicodemus. It's speaking about Simeon's resurrected sons, Carinus 
and Lathias. And this is what they say. There was a great light in Hades. Simeon arrived and announced the coming of Christ. Now in Isaiah 26, we read, thy dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. O dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For the dew is a dew of light. And on the land of shades, thou will let it fall. Isaiah predicted this harrowing of Hades. And so did Acts 26. Paul's trying to convince King Agrippa before he dies. He's trying to convince King Agrippa and he talks that Christ had to suffer. Remember, he had to be the first to rise from the dead so that he would proclaim light both to the people and to the Gentiles, to the people already dead in Hades. Simeon in Luke 2, he, these are his sons, but Simeon, full of the Holy Spirit, said, I can die now. My eyes have seen salvation. This baby, this baby Jesus is a light of revelation for the Gentiles and glory for thy people Israel. Well, if you listen, I'd like to read you an excerpt from the actual gospel of Nicodemus. It's the Greek form that's been translated with uh, a little friendlier language, like changing the these and thous. So this is what Simeon's resurrected sons, Carinus and Lathias, reported. O Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life of the world, grant us grace that we may give an account of your resurrection and your miracles, which you did in Hades. We then were in Hades, and all who had fallen asleep since the beginning of the world. And the hour of midnight, there rose a light as the sun into the dark regions, and we were all lighted up, and we saw each other. And straight away, our father Abraham was united with the patriarchs and the prophets. Remember, he was on the other side of the chasm. Luke has a story Jesus tells about Abraham. So he's united with the patriarchs and the prophets, and at the same time, they were filled with joy, and they said to each other, this light is from a great source of light. Yes, like maybe uncreated light. The prophet Isaiah, who was there, said, this light is from the Father and the Son and from the Holy Spirit, about whom I prophesied yet when I was alive, saying, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. There came into the midst another, an ascetic from the desert. And the patriarch said to him, who are you? And he said, I am John the last of the prophets, who made the paths of the Son of God straight and proclaimed to the people repentance for the remission of sins. And the Son of God came to me, and I, seeing him a long way off, said to the people, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And with my hand, I baptized him in the river Jordan. And I saw like a dove also the Holy Spirit coming upon him. And I heard the voice of God, even the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And on this account, he sent me also to proclaim how the only begotten Son of God is coming here, that whoever shall believe in him shall be saved and whoever shall not believe in him shall be condemned. So my friends, even in Hades, there's a forerunner in Hades. John is preaching right now. On this account, I say to all of you in order that when you see him, you may adore him. That not only is for you the time of repentance for having adored idols, 
in the vain upper world and for the sins you have committed and that this is impossible at any other time. So he's telling them, now is your chance. Get ready. Messiah is coming. He's going to say salvation is offered to all. When you hear him preach, when you hear his gospel, go with him, go with him, repent and go with him. It continues. While John, therefore, was thus teaching those in Hades, the first created and forefather Adam heard and said to his son, Seth, my son, I wish to tell you the forefathers of the race of men and the prophets where I sent you when it fell to my lot to die. And Seth said, prophets and patriarchs here. When my father, Adam, the first created, was about to fall once upon a time into death, he sent me to make entreaty to God, very close by the gate of paradise, that he would guide me by an angel to the tree of compassion, that I might take oil and anoint my father, that he might rise up from his sickness, which thing therefore I did. Adam is sending Seth to the tree of life before he dies to see if his son can get some oil from the tree of life, the tree of compassion, that he might not have to die. (laughs) After the prayer, an angel of the Lord came to me, Seth, and said, what, Seth, do you ask? Do you ask for oil, which raises up the sick, or the tree from which this oil flows on account of the sickness of your father? This is not to be found now. So he cannot have the tree of life because the tree of life will be the cross of Jesus Christ. Go, therefore, tell your father that after the accomplishing of 5,500 years from the creation of the world, there shall come into the earth the only begotten Son of God being made man. And he shall anoint him with this oil and shall raise him up and shall wash clean with water and with the Holy Spirit, both him and those out of him. And then shall he be healed of every disease. But now this is impossible. When the patriarchs and the prophets heard these words, they greatly rejoiced. And when all were in such joy, well, the Jews, you must understand, I'm taking a little break from Nicodemus right now. The Jews envisioned the universe made up of a flat, dish-shaped earth floating on water. Heaven was above, the underworld was below, and humans inhabited the earth during life, and then they inhabited the underworld after death. There was no way that mortals could enter heaven before Messiah. The underworld was morally neutral, a holding place called Sheol. It's mentioned in many scripture passages in the Old Testament, but Sheol was a Hebrew word. Sometimes it was called the pit or the abyss, and in the New Testament in Greek, it's called Hades. In English, it's called hell, but Sheol is equivalent to Hades or hell, but it's understood to have two areas, the abode of the just or Abraham's bosom or Gehenna. And between these two, there exists an uncrossable chasm, which separates those who have been faithful to the Lord and those who have not. And before the coming of Messiah, the anointed one, the souls of all who die, the righteous and the unrighteous, would be in a state of suspension, separated from God, and their souls would be kept in confusion in Sheol, their bodies decaying in the dust of the earth. Sheol was imagined to be a dim, shadowy place with diminished type of survival after death. And it did not, however, liberate man from the more perverse and adverse effects of creation, exclusion from perfect communion with God and men. So you notice how they couldn't see one another until that great light flooded in. Heaven once was open to full communion with mankind, but it was closed now after Eden. For the Jews, Sheol was their destiny until the coming of the anointed Messiah. Okay. Also, this next part in the Gospel of Nicodemus reminds me of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, because now we're going to get a perspective of the demons in Hades. Satan, the heir of darkness, entered and said to Hades, Hades is the master of the underworld, Oh, all-devouring and insatiable, hear my words. There is of the race of the Jews one named 
Jesus, calling himself the son of God and being a man by our working with them, the Jews have crucified him. And now when he is dead, be ready that we may secure him here. For I know that he is a man. And I heard him also saying, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. That was part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.